old battery lying around, bring it in for recycling and get a $5 merchandise card. See store for restrictions and details. Keep everything going strong this summer. Visit AutoZone today. Your battery headquarters. Parts are just part of what we do. Get in the zone. AutoZone. CBS News correspondent Jim Crisula tells us about a controversial chapter of American history come to life in North Carolina. It's believed to be the first of its kind in the nation. Plans have been finalized in Union County, North Carolina, just east of Charlotte, for a granite marker that will honor local slaves who served in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. It will be placed outside the old courthouse in Monroe in front of a Civil War monument. Historians say it's nearly impossible to know how many black men were forced into military service or followed their owners into battle in the war between the states. Jim Grisilda, CBS News, Greensboro, North Carolina. That was one big snowflake falling from the skies over Illinois, coming down at speeds of up to 220 miles an hour. 138 skydivers came together to set a world record for the largest skydiving formation known as a snowflake. They posted a video of it on YouTube if you'd like to take part vicariously. Sam Litzinger, CBS News. Today, my journey to help save people money on car insurance brings me to a shopping mall. Of course, when it comes to shopping for car insurance, most people go to Geico. I mean, with all the discounts they offer, why would you shop anywhere else? There are discounts for complete and defensive driving courses, multi-policy discounts, and discounts for being accident-free. You know, this mall is a real maze. I think I passed that candle store about five times. For a free rate quote, visit Geico.com to see how much you could save. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Make sure your car's battery can beat the heat this summer. Stop by AutoZone, your battery headquarters. And not just for car batteries. AutoZone has batteries for your RV, boat, motorcycle, and lawnmower. Plus, if you have an old battery lying around, bring it in for recycling and get a $5 merchandise card. See store for restrictions and details. Keep everything going strong this summer. Visit AutoZone today. Your battery headquarters. Parts are just part of what we do. Get in the zone. AutoZone. The views of this program are not necessarily those of KWFM, its management, or its sponsors. The host is solely responsible for the content. mission given to me by Woody Shaw, Sunship, Dizzy, and Billy Higgins, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my jazz heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Folks, welcome to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. My guest today is one of the most accomplished and diverse bass players that the Western world has come upon. He was part of Stan Kenton's band. He was a valued member of the Crusaders. He also was part of the LA Express. But what I love about my guest more than anything else is that 
he continually plays parts that he might not be accustomed to naturally fitting into in the base in the in the realm of playing the bass. Is it a rock date? Is it a folk gig? Is it something in between? Is it fusion? Is it jazz? Is it big band? It didn't matter. My guest was able to put himself inside musical scenarios that he might not necessarily be comfortable with and turn them into some downright unbelievably funky in the pocket bass playing opportunities. And so it is an honor to welcome Max Bennett to the Jake Feinberg show. Thank you very much. That's pretty complimentary. Well, I don't think I don't think necessarily it does full justice to I you know, I want to go back a little bit and talk about your upbringing and uh, a little bit about how you you got exposed to music was it was it through your your folks or just through your discovery of the radio how did that work out no I, uh, for some unknown reason from that time i was a tiny boy i was obsessed with music uh i started taking lessons on the guitar uh i think when i was about seven years old something like that seven or eight and uh the, the this man came to town and the, the lessons were a dollar and ten cents a piece. And uh, you got this little regal guitar. And if you finish the ten lessons, you're supposed to be able to play the guitar. <laughs> so uh, he stayed in town and disappeared out after about the fifth or sixth uh, lesson. And I kept the guitar and uh, took it from there. Although I was never a good guitar player, I... I was so obsessed, I played, you know, I went on and eventually played with the high school band in the rhythm section, but I, to tell you the truth, I, I really didn't have any knowledge at the time. I didn't know what I was doing much. But I was getting by, and that's about it. But uh, we were doing a concert, and I'm from a small town, Oskaloosa, Iowa, and uh, it's one of those towns that has a square. Sure. And we were, we were on the north side, they roped it off, having a big celebration, and uh, the, the high school dance band was playing that I was a part of. I was playing guitar. And a gentleman came up behind us and said, uh, I just came to town. I've been on the road, and now I'm staying in town. And could I bring my bass and sit in? And we said, of course, sure. But we never had a bass player in the band. So he stood right behind me, and it blew my mind. Absolutely, I was thrilled at the sound and the feel. So the next day, I ran down to the high school. This was during the summer, and uh, picked up a bass that was uh, they, at that time they had a they had a concert band. They also had an orchestra, so they had strings, etc. I picked up a bass, and I was home. From that point on, I was I was a bass player. And it was all got started. It was an upright bass. Yeah, correct. And it was just and and so when he was playing behind you, he was just kind of you know sending. You said you, you liked the sound and the feel. Yeah, yeah. We never had a bass in the band before, yeah. and I just couldn't get over how good it felt, and it just I was hooked immediately. Uh. So I, I went down to the high school, picked up a bass, and that was it. I was <laughs> I was on my way. And and um, you know. Because you you know you you said in high school you kind of were just keeping up you didn't necessarily have a you know foundation uh, not really you know no. and, and I played be- trombone in a high school band uh, 
And it's interesting because usually there are three trombone players, they're like a trombone trio. Two of them are tenor, and one plays the bottom part. And I always wanted to play the bottom part, but I didn't know why. So uh, that, that kind of came hand in hand with playing the bass, of course. Uh, but uh, that's what got me started, and, and, uh, and here I am today. Did you ever consider uh, going to college, or did you want to just start a career in music right away? I did go to college. I went to the University of Iowa for two years. And uh, after two years, I realized that that's not where I belonged. And I had received a call from some friends of mine in Des Moines who were in Meridian, Mississippi, uh, playing at a club. And they said, we need a bass player. So I jumped on a train and went to Meridian, Mississippi, and called my folks and said, uh, save your money. I, I'm not going back to college. And they said, fine, good luck. And uh, I went to Meridian and joined this group. And <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, took it from there. What was Meridian, what, what kind of audience and what kind of music were you playing down there? Oh, well, we were playing standards. Uh, it was a small group, I think about five or six people. I remember there was a tenor saxophone and an alto saxophone and a rhythm section. Uh, no horns. Oh, yes, it was a horn, excuse me, trumpet. And so it was about a six or seven piece band, and we played in a club for dancing. And we played mostly standards. Uh, and uh, we were there for about... We were there for about seven or eight months at least. Then we came back and we all went to Chicago from there and uh, hung out and starved. <laughs> uh, and played in clubs in, in the late, uh, there's a club called the uh, the High Note at 450 North Clark in Chicago. And uh, they the, the pan broke, they stopped at two and then they had jam sessions till six in the morning. Wow. And all the guys who were unemployed players or anybody else came and, and uh, they closed the place up except for the back door and people all, all over Clark Street was, uh, well, basically it was strip joints for a long time. And all those people that worked there and so on, they would come into the uh, to the high note and uh, hang out with us and listen to the jam stations that we would have until six in the morning. And that, that helped me a lot because there was a lot of guys, uh, a lot of guys from the south side of Chicago playing those strip joints and they would, the boss would hire drums, piano, he had a beat up old piano and a saxophone, but they never hired the bass. So I could go up and down the street in the evening and play, because it was for nothing, but sit in and play with those guys from Chicago, the, mostly uh, black guys from Chicago, in South Chicago. And they were good players, and I learned a lot from them. That was really sort of an apprenticeship for me. The the uh, so I've been fascinated for a long time with this idea. This the idea that clubs would stay open until uh, five in the morning. I've talked to a lot of different guys who, you know, they'd finish a gig at eleven o'clock, and they're the sole you know the the sole uh, club would be still open. And they'd right. go across the street, and they'd sit in on drums, and they'd walk out at eight in the morning. People would be going to church, and they'd be going home to sleep. But uh, you're saying to me that that was really more just that there was it was not a paid gig. It was just to get your sound out. It was a jam session. They, they, they actually we all knew it was a jam session. The regular band quit at two and then we would come in and start playing and people would just filter in as they finished their jobs. And uh, we played till six. Usually they, by six o'clock, it was then it was, uh, it was mostly in the summertime, too, at that time. And so people would uh, would drift in and hang out there. They'd keep the bar open, 
I don't know how they managed that, but they did. But yeah. they, you had to come through the back door because the front door was definitely locked. So, but they they got away with it, and uh, we had a great time, and I learned a lot. From Can, yeah, I want I want guys. you to talk about what you from those sort of wily veterans of the of the South Side music scene. A lot of guy unheralded guys, really good players. What were the things that you that you learned the most from those sessions? Pro- probably just songs and uh, and playing with good time. You know, it was just sort of an apprenticeship for me. Uh, I'd never played with a lot of really good drum players, uh, you know, drummers, because I was from a small town in Oskaloosa, Iowa, and we just didn't have that there. And I jumped uh, <clears throat> right from, from uh, Iowa City, uh, University of Iowa, and I did play there quite a bit. But they weren't great players. But uh, as soon as I got into Chicago and, you know, playing those jam stations, it was much better musicianship. You know, uh, Max, we're going we're gonna to take some time and go through your career in a, in a, in a pretty elaborate way. But, uh, you know, for my audience, uh, you know, they, they don't want to hear me, you know, jabbering on questions. Uh, we thought, That's I, I, okay. I, 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 you know, the point is that uh, when... Uh, uh, Max, like I was talking before, you you put you you uh, you found yourself in a lot of different scenarios in Iowa, Meridian, South Side of Chicago. You got to cut your teeth, and it really prepared you for um, the seventies, which is uh, or the early seventies, which was a real flourishing time, and it was a time you were using the electric bass. Correct. And I wanted to uh, play a clip of music here and uh, come back and talk about it. Okay. Okay.
Can you talk a little bit about how, just going maybe going back, going uh, a little bit farther ahead and then coming back, when you, you so you, you were in Chicago, but how did you eventually make it to Los Angeles? How did you get the call from, from Kenton? Uh, well, uh, right after, I'll make, try to make this brief. After Chicago, uh, I joined a group uh, called Herbie Fields, the saxophone player. We had a group, and I worked with them for several months. We ended up in New York, and uh, uh, and I played, uh, got to play with Charlie Parker at that time, and the bass player didn't show up for the first set or something, and so I got to play a couple of tunes with him. Unbelievable! Which, which was a thrill. Of well, course. can you can you just spend? I, I don't think I've talked to any of my guests that have had a chance to play with Bird. Can you just share a little bit about that? Well, it, it was a quickie. Uh, there's a, a club. Billy Eckstein was the headline singer, and. Uh, 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 Bird was opening, and then Herbie Fields, the group I was with, was second in line. And I used to go every night and listen to the band, but about the fifth or sixth night, uh, I was standing waiting for them to go on, because they were first, Bird was. And uh, he said, aren't you the bass player with uh, Herbie Fields? And I said, yes. He said, well, get your bass. <laughs> he said, uh, the Tommy, Tommy Potter was the bass player with him. He said, he didn't show up. So I was like, oh, my God, I get to play with Bird. So I went out and played a couple of tunes. It was pretty much of a daze, you know, but uh, I was so excited. And then later on, after I left Herbie Fields, I joined George Yall's group with Lou Levy and Tiny Khan and, and uh, Frank Rosalino and Georgie. And we worked on the north side of Chicago, went to Chicago, worked on the north side at the Silhouette Club. And Bird was downtown at the Blue Note with, in, with uh, Bird with Strings. And he finished earlier than we did because we worked much later in Chicago at night. And he used to come out uh, during the time he was there several times and sit in with us. Wow. So I got to play with him again, which was even better because it was way more relaxed and it was a better band too. So that was quite a thrill. Wait, so you're saying that, that uh, you were with Lou Levy and Frank Rosalino at this time? Yeah. That, what a, I mean, dude, get me some tapes of that band. That was a good band. It oh really my. was. I mean, Tony Khan, great, one of the greatest drummers ever. Just fantastic. He was from Brooklyn, New York. You know, and it was a great band. It really was. I and mean, then, uh, like, I just, you know, I know you, you didn't obviously like have like you weren't really tight with with Bird, but I mean, what did what stood no, out? No, not you, at all. But what stood out to you? That I mean, it was obviously he was an he was an entrepreneur. He was totally improvisational, and he was ahead of his time. But Oops, yes. what, what did you what did you gather from his his ability to to relate to other human beings? That's kind of made him a a, a compelling figure and a leader. Well, it's uh, difficult to say. I didn't really I didn't really know him at all. Uh, but uh, listening to his records and everything, he was just one of a great group of very innovative saxophone players, trumpet players, and uh, Bird was from I think he came from. I think he was from Kansas City, originally, Kansas City, Missouri. But he was just a great guy, and I never really had any personal relationship with him. Uh, he led a band in New York and played with other bands. He did just like the rest of it did. One time you're the leader, next time somebody else is the leader. But it's like the same group of players in that area, and you all just play together because you're jazz players. I mean, I always considered myself essentially a jazz musician, although I've done much more than that and jazz, but uh, that's the way I think of myself as essentially a jazz musician. 
Can you talk about, you know, this is a little bit off, off base, but I was talking to, uh, to Howard Johnson and about those, those Titans, sort of the Parkers and the, and the Louis Armstrongs, the Coltrane's, and, you know, those, right. those guys are called the legends, and Howard was quick to say, he's like, they're not calling my generation legends, but what, how, you know, how would you characterize your, your generation uh, of musicians? Uh, in so, because I, I'm tremendously fascinated, and I also feel that you guys really were able to, like you said, you played a, in a wide array of idioms before, uh, music was so stratified. So I'm just kind of curious to get your perspective on your generation of musicians. Well, uh, as, as a young guy, when I got influenced with music, uh, my, my influences, uh, my main influence at the time when I lived in my hometown, uh, there wasn't much music there, but Duke Ellington's band, that was it for me. Although I loved a lot of other big bands, big bands were very popular. You know, I'm going way back here. Uh, big bands were very popular, so I listened to all the kind of bands. I loved Woody Herman's band, but Duke Ellington's band was was just something completely different harmonically and uh, great players. And I just got hooked on that kind of music, and that was always been a, an influence. Uh, there was a great bass player that uh, Jimmy Blanton that worked with him. He died uh, of TB at early age, but he was a great bass player. And he was one of my influences. Another one, I'm talking about stand-up bass. Sure. Uh, Ray Brown was another influence. Ray and I were really good, really good friends and worked a lot together in the studios in L.A. a lot. And we, we were pretty tight at that time. He sounds like he was a... Uh, great. Uh, great I, I mean, uh, just large, just almost uh, a, a mass of humanity. I mean, Jim Hewart, the great bass player, he, he said that... I know Jim, yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, you, and Jim was like... You know, he, he was talking about when when Ella Fitzgerald was looking for a new bass player, and, and because him and Ray had collaborated in Minnesota, he, right. he Ray recommended him for the gig. It was just, you know, it just to me it was like the reasons they were legends, on top of just being incredible, just had guys that had great chops. It, it, it was because they were completely selfless, and they were they were in, they were secure enough with themselves where they could say, you know. There's this guy, you know. He's got. He's great, and he deserves a chance. Oh yeah. You know. And well, I, we all help each other out. I, I worked with Ella for about a year and a half, also. Uh, and uh, we, you know, I would venture to say that the jazz musicians all over the country are sort of a club all their own in a way. I'm not trying to separate them necessarily from other players, but it's just since they have a lot in common musically, they tend to uh, help each other out and. And associate with Judge Ernestoli. It's just a natural thing to do that. And uh, Ray was a great guy. And as a matter of fact, uh, he did some producing, and then he hired me to play because I was playing electric bass then. But and I still am. This afternoon, as a matter of fact. Yeah, well, well, tell me a little about this gig this afternoon. I love the fact you're going out to. I would, I would love to do to be able to catch this gig. But this is this the thing I'm doing today as a radio station, as a matter of fact, called K, uh, KSBR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the radio station for Saddleback College, and they have this bash once a year, uh, once a year, and they invite all the, the uh, headline musicians that, whose CDs they play on the air, and we all get together, we all bring one tune, and then they make a roster, and we just play each other's tune, and it always has a great crowd, so that's what I'm going to be doing from, from about uh, 4 o'clock on. 
which is great because uh, and and unlike in sunny California, you get 70, 75 degrees with a breeze, and you know here in Tucson we're going to be launching into the hundred and tens. Yeah, well, it's a little, it's a, it's a, it, that's about the temperature now. It, it gets a little chilly at night. It's pretty breezy here today. Uh, I would, I, I prefer it when it's not cold and it's not too breezy. Hey, <laughs> Max, we're playing outside. You know, I want to ask you a question. So you're, you know, you know, I. I feel one of my theses is that they, uh, not, not, there's no boogeyman, I keep saying they, but th- this idea that, like, they're, when I hear jazz now, it, it has to be, you know, we have such great acoustic instruments, and, you know, people go back and they want to hear the upright bass, and they want to hear the acoustic, and I think that's fine, but there was a, that doesn't mean that we should ignore or, or neglect the electric instrumentation that, in my mind, really, um, made jazz pivot uh very well you know the the the, the electric uh, keyboards the fender roads the electric bass right. i to me that fusion of blues and 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 motown and jazz uh and rock from the early 70s was really compelling and and it opened things up yeah add latin to that too and add- this is the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll be right back. NBC News Radio, I'm Dan Scanlon. Another golden day at the Olympics. Michael Phelps put the U.S. ahead in the 400-meter medley relay with his trademark butterfly stroke. Japan took the silver, Australia the bronze. Phelps retires with 18 gold medals, 22 overall in his career. That is twice as many as his nearest competitor. Just before Phelps struck gold, Missy Franklin set a world record in the 200 backstroke. That is her third gold of the London Games. Right behind Phelps, the youngest member of the U.S. team, 15-year-old Katie Ledecky, won gold in the 800-meter freestyle. Team USA barely beat Lithuania 99-94 to remain undefeated. And Serena Williams claimed the tennis singles gold over Maria Sharapova. A fire near Luther, Oklahoma is now under control, but at least 121 buildings, most of them homes, were lost. Police are looking for a suspect in a black pickup truck who may have set those fires. This is NBC News Radio. Live from Progressive. Let's take another call. Hey, Flo, uh, ever wonder if you offer too many discounts? Never. Homeowner, safe driver, snapshot, pay in full. Right now we offer more discounts than ever. Doesn't that seem a bit <laughs> excessive? Wait, is this Bill and Tom from another insurance company? Uh, hang up. Hang up. Busted. Getting you all the discounts you deserve. Now that's Progressive. Call or click today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and its affiliates. Mayfield Village, Ohio. Prices vary based on how you buy. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Get in the zone! Make sure your car's battery can beat the heat this summer. Stop by AutoZone, your battery headquarters. And not just for car batteries. AutoZone has batteries for your RV, boat, motorcycle, and lawnmower. Plus, if you have an old battery lying around, bring it in for recycling and get a $5 merchandise card. See store for restrictions and details. Keep everything going strong this summer. Visit AutoZone today. Your battery headquarters. Parts are just part of what we do. Get in the zone! AutoZone. Today, my journey to help save people money on car insurance brings me to a shopping mall. Of course, 
when it comes to shopping for car insurance, most people go to Geico. I mean, with all the discounts they offer, why would you shop anywhere else? There are discounts for complete and defensive driving courses, multi-policy discounts, and discounts for being accident-free. You know, this mall is a real maze. I think I passed that candle store about five times. For a free rate quote, visit Geico.com to see how much you could save. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Get in the zone! Make sure your car's battery can beat the heat this summer. Stop by AutoZone, your battery headquarters. And not just for car batteries. AutoZone has batteries for your RV, boat, motorcycle, and lawnmower. Plus, if you have an old battery lying around, bring it in for recycling and get a $5 merchandise card. See store for restrictions and details. Keep everything going strong this summer. Visit AutoZone today. Your battery headquarters. Parts are just part of what we do. Get in the zone. AutoZone. In this day and age, people have a lot to protect. You want to know that when you're insuring valuable goods, you have an agent you can trust. Craig Pretzinger is that agent. For auto, home, and life insurance, the Pretzinger Agency is Tucson's most honest and flexible insurance company. Have off-road vehicles or motor homes? Pretzinger can cover that as well. Pretzinger Agency at 299-5810, located across the street from Sullivan Steakhouse on the southwest corner of River and Camp. Trust, compassion, and service. The whole package at Pretzinger Agency. Call 299-5810 or text quote to 520-582-5150. 520-582-5150. On the continuum of stereos, there are the good, the bad, the ugly, the nondescript, the esoteric, the mundane. You might have one for which there are no adequate words. At Stereo Hospital, we try to be universally accepting of them all, no matter how expensive or cheap or compromised or vilified or revered they might be. For a minimal charge, we will put your malfunctioning stereo on our workbench and determine how serious its problems are. Guaranteed repairs are completed only with your approval of the final cost. If you want to take a giant step backwards to 1970, we have vintage receivers, turntables, speakers, and tape decks for sale with full warranty at reasonable prices. For service on and sales of stereo equipment of all kinds, the in-crowd meets at 4044 East Speedway inside Metronome Music. You can confirm our hours of operation and phone at Stereohospital.com, where the misbehaving and misbegotten are rendered civilized and attractive, if humanly possible. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. One of the first things I wanted to do when I moved to Tucson was find authentic Chinese cuisine. After a tip from the Chinese Student Association, I headed over to Badar Chinese Restaurant. Well, it's been seven years, and I have never looked back. Located at 7321 East Broadway Boulevard, Badar has been a family-run operation since 1992. The award-winning chef produces succulent dishes from sizzling ginger chicken to salt and pepper shrimp. The thing that separates Badar from the rest is that the chef procures ancient oriental dishes with the exotic island flair of Taiwan. Most importantly, there are no gimmicks or razzle-dazzle at Badar. You won't find any flat-screen TVs or karaoke machines. Badar is a place to go enjoy good food and spend time with your family. It exudes peace and tranquility after a long week of work. So come down and check out Badar Chinese Restaurant. Hong Hao Chu, it's that good. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. When it came time to decide where to buy my daughter a piano last year, the choice was easy. We got it at Hackenberg & Sons Piano Company. 
Located at 4333 East Broadway Boulevard, Hackenberg & Sons is Tucson's longest-running family-owned piano business. Run by three brothers and a son, they pride themselves on superior instruments and customer satisfaction. It's why they've been around so long. And it's why their pianos are used at the University of Arizona, Pima Community College, and many other prestigious institutions. So whether it's for your child, business, or yourself, when you buy a piano, make sure you go to Hackenberg & Sons. It'll be the beginning of a long-lasting partnership. For more information, visit them at hackenbergpiano.com. you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Be a part of a new coalition with Jake Feinberg. The second half of my show starts right now. Welcome back to a place where we have no problems at all. KWFM 1330, the star. This is the Jake Feinberg show. Special announcement today. The eighth annual Tucson record show is Sunday, November 11th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Las Casolitas Event Center, 1365 West Grant Road. That's just west of I-10. Admission is just $4. Dealer tables are $35 prepaid and $40 the week of the show. Last year, we sold out all the tables. And it was a great show. I was there, and I picked up some unbelievable vinyl. Contact Bruce Smith at 520-622-0104 and at Cassidy Collectibles at earthlink.net. Records, CDs, and music memorabilia. So we're looking forward to that. Musicians who have spent their lives creating and not copying have had to take periodic breaks in the road to hone their instrument and develop new ideas and the sequencing of those ideas. This creates a level of authenticity between the musicians and their peers. My guest today has been on the scene for over a half a century, writing, educating, and playing with, among others, the skipper Henry Franklin, Carl Burnett, John Hurd, Calvin Keyes, Robert Frazier, Al Hall, Jr., Ndugu Chancellor, and Frank Zappa. He plays the tenor saxophone, the alto saxophone, the soprano saxophone, the clarinet, the flute, the oboe, the bassoon, and the English horn. Born in the great capital of Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, Charles Owens, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the air with you, Ben. You sound great. Nice to talk with you. It's great to talk to you, man. I, I thank you. I, I wanted to ask you uh, uh, just real quickly. Uh, you you were stationed in Puerto Rico in the in the in the military. Is that true? In the Air Force, yes, I was stationed in the Air Force band and uh, San Juan. Well, actually, at the other end of the island, in a place called Aguadilla at Ramey Air Force Base. We were there to uh, provide uh, public relations for the Air Force. So. The Puerto Rican people could enjoy the aircraft taking off. They were so loud and they disturbed everybody. And we did a pretty good job of keeping them happy, playing some good uh, Cuban and Puerto Rican music. That's where I became, got introduced to Latin American music, and it was a real wonderful experience. Yeah, I, I have to. There was a. There's also, you know, most of the Puerto Rican cats, like that percussion guys, they emigrated up to the East Coast after that. Guys like Ray Mantia. And there were other Puerto Rican guys as well that came up that way. But so you the the talk a little bit about the significance of the African drums, the conga drums, uh, into uh, you know what you might call a, a jazz idiom setting. Well, I had the pleasure of working with Mongo Santa Maria, hmm. and he was from Havana, Cuba, and he came in through uh, Mexico City when he got his visa, and uh, he brought in 
Francisco Agobella mm. and uh, quite most of the other Latin percussionists. And he was like the first one to uh, play the conga drums in a jazz setting. And he was he would told me uh, or told the band a couple of times that when he had first played with Max Roach, Max did really didn't dig having him there and tried to rush the tempo and make him feel uncomfortable. But Bonger was a very strong player, and after a while. Um, Max started digging, digging, and started getting a groove together. So, because you know, a good, a good Congo player can fit in any kind of situation—rock, funk, classical, whatever. So, Mongo was like the pioneer of uh, bringing it all together in New York, and um, work with uh, what's the guy? Cal Jader. Yes, that's right. He was with Cal Jader for a long time. I'm still trying to think of uh, Tito Puente. Of course, yeah. He also played with Tito Puente for a long time, and after a while, he. Uh, kind of helped establish the, the Congo groove around New York, and Willie Bobo came on the scene, and <laughs> Willie Bobo had a great sense of humor. He said he was a Spookerican. He wasn't a Puerto Rican. <laughs> but he, he was a great Timbali player that he and Mongo hooked up, and that they wound up playing with, like you say, Cal Jeter for a long time. You know, I wanted to ask you something that actually uh, fits right into this, but, you know, I think one of the things that's well, there's a lot missing uh, from live music, uh, or the idea of you know accessibility, venues, the opportunity to for late hours of playing, just music in general being played outside of storefronts, you know, just being able to hear music. But some of these, you know, I I, I would call them ethnic cats, but the Willy Bobos of the world and the Mongos and the, you know. Th- those guys were character builders, and they were also to me music was a huge invigorating force for for minorities and i know you do a lot of work in the schools sure and i i i I wonder a little bit about uh you know why 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 has there been such a drastic fall off Uh, i know they people say first off they take the music out of the schools they take the music out of the schools and by and large that might be true but you know give me give me the flip side of it the idea of someone like yourself who's gifted in all these different uh instruments but how? What's the most important thing you do when you go into these schools? What do you try to talk to these kids about, and how do you work with them if they don't have any? If their parents never learned how to play instruments? Well, um, that's a real big question to answer in such a short period of time. I know I have the pleasure of doing a, a history of jazz program in February. Every February is uh, Black History Month, and since. Uh, we black people invented jazz in New Orleans around the turn of the century, you know, 1900 or 1901. We want to get credit for it and also let the young people know, not only the young black people, but all the young kids through every school that we go to. And we play 15 different schools and we do two assemblies at each school. And uh, we've never gone to a school where the young people, white, black, Chinese, out here in Los Angeles, we have all kind of audiences you know absolutely absolutely all they all love jazz they want to know about when it was born we we go right down the line and talk about uh bubber uh buddy molly or i can't think i think it's buddy molly but the guy that influenced uh lewis armstrong and we talk about louis we have big pictures and show pictures of lewis armstrong and pictures of ella fitzgerald the first lady of song and Duke Ellington, of course, and Count Basie. So we just kind of lay the groundwork, and then we challenge them to go home and turn on our jazz station out here and listen to jazz while they're doing the homework. Um, uh, so it's just a matter of 
I, I sometimes I feel like if it wasn't for the Los Angeles Jazz Society, which sponsors these bands in February, it's three different bands. Washington Rucker has a band. Um, a guy named Preston has a band. Then I have a band, and I've been doing this program for about ten or eleven years with the same personnel generally. And the drummer gets up and talks about the history of the drums, like. When they first played in New Orleans, they had what they called the second line, and each drummer played a different instrument. You had a cymbal player, a snare drum player, a bell player, a bass drum player, and a miscellaneous. So after a while, they had to combine that. He says uh, one, the budget got small, so one drummer had to do it all, so we came up with a jazz kit. <laughs> and each person talks about that respective instrument. So... Um, uh, that's what that's what my band does. That's what we do to a jazz history. It's just it's just a matter of like people like you, who have a great jazz station, been doing it for a while, exposing people. We have to ex- keep exposing the young people because it's uh, you got rap out there and you got hip hop and you got all that. Well, that's coming from the blues and coming from good music and it almost goes all the way back to uh, slavery music when you had the chance. So. It's just a matter of introducing and exposing the kids to blues and jazz, and that's all it is. They'll, some of them will like it and some of them won't like it, but uh, we just have to keep putting it out there and let them make the decisions themselves. I, you know, um, uh, the, the station you speak of is K-Jazz, and actually in your— Right. When I'm with, when I'm with my family up in Phoenix, inevitably we drive back— uh, you know, front to Tucson, you know, and I can pick up K Jazz on the uh, local public radio. Uh, the public radio station in Phoenix picks up K Jazz at night. So Great. I mean, we get to, but but you know, I mean, I when I talked about Willie Bobo, I just meant somebody who clearly not a perfect angel, but a guy who had so much moxie, he was unafraid, and he could play in all different types of settings, and that's and, right. and, and that's the. Th- I mean, even though I wasn't even alive. You can understand right. that because when they put Paul Humphrey and they put Shelly Mann and they put Willie Bobo and they put all these crazy, crazy percussionists, you're like, they all they don't look the same. They all have different age demographics. But yet, look, they're all jamming and they're all having fun. And, and you know, so without getting into a, a huge theoretical thing about, you know, the industry itself, it's just to me, it was just so I know you guys weren't getting paid. <laughs> you know, I get I get that, you know, big money. But in a lot of ways. That's where the spiritual music came from because it was a brotherhood. Nobody was getting cheap shotted. Everybody was in the same boat, regardless. And you had this inner meshing that was just so beautiful. And when I talk about the time period, I mean, of course, the late sixties and early seventies. But you know, yeah. you would talk about it better than I can, obviously. Sure. Well, we had live clubs. Then you had six night a week gigs. You were off on Monday and you played in the club Tuesday through Sunday, and uh, it was a lot of lot more clubs in the black neighborhood. That's where basically uh, also jazz was going on, and, and even mo- and most of your big cities, and people from all over town would come out and hang out, the college students and the politicians, and everybody would come over there and hear Les McCann or hear Stanley Turrentine, and he would be there. They'd be there from Tuesday through Sunday and uh, be preaching the gospel, and everybody would have a good time. And people like Willie Bobo was not only... A great musician. He was a great entertainer. <laughs> exactly. You saw. You wouldn't have to know anything about the timbales or anything. If you watched him, you would have a good time because he was such a good entertainer. He could sing. Same thing with Les McCann. When he had a, after he ra- had his 
trio for a long time, and it was kind of fading. He sang, I forget the name of the song that he sang, With These Hands, I think was the name, but he started singing, and that rejuvenated his career because Dick Bach told me about that, that, that that kept him going for years and years. It didn't, you know, just They just, uh, people like Willie Bobo and Les McCann know how to entertain, and they know how to write entertaining music that touch people and make people want to have a good time. You know, it's just, they have a special quality about them. They're one in a million type of cats. So You're right. You're right about that. They, I mean, and you had a chance to, to, to collaborate with them. But I, the other thing I wanted to ask you, it's just so funny you bring, Dick Bach has been on, um, I've done a couple of other interviews this week with, with different musicians. And sure. the guy, not just World Pacific Jazz, but like he was also into intermix, intermixing you know, the Ali Akbar Khan school, like the Indian Raga music with popular and then maybe like jazz as well. I'm just, I'm curious, like there was just such a blending. I know that the Beatles get a lot of credit for that, of uh, incorporating Indian music into pop music or even, you know, fusing it with uh, with, with different types of, of uh, blues. It was just, uh, did you did you ever get a chance to study with any uh, Indian musicians? Was that something that you, that you ever came across? No, I, I haven't had that pleasure. I know uh, John B. Williams, I played in his band, and he had some songs that were had been influenced by Indian music. It'd be 24 over 7 or <laughs> 17 over 21 or whatever. That's about as close as I got. But let me ask you a question. Did I know Dick Bach, I'm asking this, did Dick Bach produce Ravi Shankar and his daughter and all that line of Indian uh, he, he did on He did on World Pacific, and he also uh, produced a band called Shanti, which was S-H-A-N-T-I. It wow. had Zakir Hussain, uh, Ali Akbar Khan's son, and then this guy Neil Seidel, Seidel who was uh, okay. an L.A. session player. But the point is that the guy, had, he had his fingerprints in the Crusaders, in Les McCann, in, he also uh, produced uh, Chet Baker's for one of Chet Baker's first albums at that time. He, he did. Had, he was. He just was very intuitive, and he had a sense of knowing what was good and what people might like. And sometimes it didn't always sell as much he'd like. Because when I was with Buddy Rich's band, uh, Buddy Rich, I think, did a couple of CDs. I say I'm coming up to date now, but albums. <laughs> yeah, for, LPs. Oh, yeah, LPs, <laughs> and I had a, a, I did an arrangement of Old to Billy Joe that Buddy Rich recorded and Dick Bach produced. And then when I left the Buddy Rich band, uh, Dick Bach said, now if you want to do something after having been with Buddy Rich, and Dick Bach and I kind of established a little relationship. He said, when you get to Los Angeles now, you give me a call, and we'll do an album of yours. And that's exactly what he did. I recorded for... Uh, Jack Lewerke, uh, Discovery, not, not, uh, I can't think of the name of it now, but I worked for Jack Lewerke and did my first CD or album for because of Dick Bach. Was it, so the, they had a finger in every kind of stuff. Was that Two Quartets? What was the name of that album? That was called uh, Water Motherload. Mother, I, you know, I just saw that on eBay the other day. It, was, it sold for like, you know, 20 bucks. It's, it's like a $20. It's great. You know, I I'll saw it. By, I have my dashiki on the front of that, and my little <laughs> soprano has a sparkle on it. And the guy that did the, right. uh, did the photography for it, his name was uh, Jones, I think. And my underwear was showing, but he liked the idea that the soprano was sparkling a certain way. He said, no, I'm not going to put take another picture of it. I'm going to let that lay. You, you just have to show your draws because I love the shot that I got up against the soprano. <laughs> 
So I said, come on, man. He said, no days. Dottie Woodard was his no days. His wife. His name was Woodard. As we go along, I'm thinking, remember this stuff. But uh, uh, Dick Bach was very influential in the West Coast scene. I think he probably recorded Gerald Wilson a little bit. So he just had his finger in everything. You know, uh, we <laughs> there's just so much to talk about with Charlie Owens. And in typical L.A., sunny California fashion, it's like going sure. to a Dodger game. We showed up in the fourth inning. And wow. uh, so we, we have a lot to get to. Um, we're gonna listen. Sure. To, we're gonna listen to a track of music here, Charlie, and uh, come back and. Uh, sure, I'll be here. We'll, we'll put. We'll get. We'll go back in time. My pleasure. I bring you back in time a little bit? Wow, that was some great stuff. Who was that? That was you. That was me? That was you. What was the name of that? That was Aunt Lovey. That was uh, that was Calvin Keyes. Oh, yeah, on Proceed with Caution, it's, huh? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's been, it's been a wow, while. Wow, I, sure, I, I, I liked it immediately, but uh, wow, that's some terrible, I can't say what it really was on the air, but it was some terrible S. <laughs> it was it was you blowing i mean that was wow. that was unbelievable stuff because uh and you know i, I wow. yeah <laughs> that's what happened with uh and, and that's the, you know the skippers on bass on that album i think kirk lights he's on piano 
But I mean, (laughs) you're still in awe of that. I love when people are in awe of their own stuff. It's great. You know, they think that's. I forgot about that. When I saw Calvin Keyes at the uh, Four Queens, they used to have a jazz series up there on Monday night. The last time I saw him was he was playing up there. He had driven up from San Francisco. He's a tremendous, tremendous guitarist. You know, like, could you talk a little bit about when you got to L.A., you know, the kind of brotherhood that was already established among the local guys and, and you know, who you really, you know, connected with uh, right away, specifically guys that were bringing uh, real music to to that scene? Well, the cat, the guy that was at the king of the hill at that time, and he still is, was the skipper. I got to town, and it was Michael Carvin, Henry Franklin, Oscar Brashear, uh, and Dugo Chancellor, uh, Bill Henderson. We did a rec- Henry was recording for Black Jazz Records at that time, and Henry would give a gig. He'd find a coffee house over at Onanji's. That's at the corner of Redondo and uh, Pico, and it would be packed because. Henry would have that many people at his house every day. So <laughs> he just moved the people from his house over to the gig, right? And we, you know, we'd have a good time and work off the door and make a nice little taste and play uh, music from one of his first black jazz recordings. Uh, he has some records, uh, Little, little Larry, and uh, I can't think of some of the other, but it was the music that we rehearsed at his house. We just went over to Onaji's, which was the name of the club we played. It was it a Japanese and, club or something? No, that was like an African. That was the name at that time. We had every all the black cats had African or Swahili names. There was Ndugu, had uh, Chachi, which was Oscar Bashir's name, uh, Nimbu. Uh, Nimbu, yeah. Nimbu, that's Henry's name. Oh, and man. Everybody had a name, but I didn't go for African. I said, my name is Charlie Owens. <laughs> I'm having enough time trying to establish that so people will know who Charlie Owens is. I'm not going to change it in the middle of the stream, but every name had a had a certain feeling added to it, like um, Carl Burnett. I forget what his name was. Yeah, no, I mean, but the idea there was, it, you know, and, and listen, I want to tell you, we have to go to the, the news in about two minutes. We'll come back on the other side. Sure. So, but, you know, there was something about uh, that uh, keeping with the African roots, the names that, that definitely added to an intrigue to the band because, to me, that black jazz music that you were playing, that was from the homeland. That was, it was, yeah. it was electric from the homeland. And George Russell, I mean, not George Russell, but... Uh, Gene Russell. Guy, Gene Russell, yeah, the producer and president of black jazz, he would, he would, he's always started a racial controversy because he would say, I could tell a white guy playing from a black guy, and they would have him on the radio, and sure enough, he could tell the black guy playing... From the white guy, exactly. So had a little more feeling, a little earth, or whatever. But he would always piss off a whole all of Los Angeles by <laughs> something like that. But he could back it up, and he produced Rudolph Johnson. He produced uh, Chester Thompson, right? You know. Right. But listen, I want to tell you something. You just you just broke some news because I've been obsessing about Gene Russell for a long, long time, and I knew he was always. I'm not going to say he was a fly in the ointment. He told the truth. And that's Absolutely. what you're, and, and you're doing it in a much more politically correct way today. But by going to those schools, you're telling those kids this is the roots of the music. Period. Yeah. And that's what and Gene also, was saying too. And also that black people invented it. And also, uh, not only did we invent jazz, we invented the red light, how to store. Charles Drew invented a way to store blood so we could have blood transfusion, and just and, and a black cat invented the computer. 
So it's just we're just showing that everybody, you know, has something to be proud of. Next month is Cinco de Mayo, then the the Mexican cats, you know, come out and talk about how proud they are. They first date, but the first ones that have California. So, yeah, I try to do it in a way because there's been times when I have pissed off the media here too. I was out at a. No, we'll uh, get into it. Let's 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 okay. we'll go to the break. We'll come back on the other side with Charlie Owens. Hang tight. Okay, this thank you. Jake Feinberg Show on KWFM thirteen thirty, the Star. CBS News. I'm Sam Litzinger. That big wildfire near Luther, Oklahoma is under control now, but a search is underway for a suspected arsonist. Police are looking for the driver of a black Ford pickup who witnessed... And we're back here in a overtime session here with Charlie Owens. So, I mean, Charlie, I wanted to, you know, I, I want to be clear about this. Gene really was promoting what who he saw were the African-American jazz cats that were never getting any, he wanted to start a label for those guys because that was, that was the music and it wasn't being recorded. That's right. And he did. And he certainly did. He did a great job of it. He was a kind of a quiet guy. I got to know Gene a little bit because he would always come to the recording session with Henry and Henry did about three or four records, CDs or albums for black jazz and, uh, so he he would he lived he did exactly what you just said he did he gave the black cats a chance and an outlet to do some do an album and then travel around the country like uh, who was the guy that uh, Gene the guy that it was played, Doug Carn yeah yeah Doug Carns Doug's career took off behind black jazz so he helped us all a lot yeah and maybe it, yeah maybe it was uh, it's amazing you talk about pissing people off in you know, different sectors of the media world. I mean, I just had a conversation with Big Black where, you know, to make j- j- jazz was known as J-A-S-S, you know, originally, you know, <laughs> yeah. and and then all of a sudden to be, become more politically re- correct and expand to a more wider audience, it became J-A-Z-Z. And I just, you know, to me, it's like, I, I just feel in a lot of ways People need to tell to speak their mind, and more importantly, tell the truth and not be afraid. I think there's a lot of emphasis today on saying, "Well, I'm coasting right now. I'm I'm okay. I, I I'm just gonna you know lay low and not worry about it." And that's a disservice to our progress, the the, uh, the ability for us to progress as a as a people. Well, I think uh, you have to know how to. You can say anything if you put it in the right context. You say like six things politically politically correct. Well, that's because I'm an old guy now and I've made all kinds of mistakes and pissed a lot of people off. But the bottom line is everybody likes good music and everybody likes to be around good people. And you find good white people, good black people. Some black people I wouldn't want to have nothing to do with because they're the dirtiest dogs I've ever been around. They don't stand for anything good. You just want to be around good people that love the music, not people that are going to have a, have a concert and rip the band off mm-hmm. or not have, you know, if it's a hot place and they don't have air conditioning. You just want to be around nice people. It, may, it makes life so much easier. You, you know, there's enough um, buttholes around to, to go around anyway. You just want to try to stay around the good people. Like you're, you're down there in Tucson, you're producing jazz. I'd like you doing a whole lot of good work down there for, for musicians and yourself. And you'd like to say your daughter started playing piano. You got went to this music store and they got a good deal or whatever that's the kind of people you want to work with you know <laughs> you know so that's, no i that's, mean i i'll be very honest with you i mean 
to me, my show is it, we don't delve into theory. I mean, that would put people to sleep. I look at people, I say, okay, where's the authenticity in my generation's music? Uh, yeah. you know, what, what, what exists today in, insofar as information when it comes to liner notes and photography and then also the stories and the intellectual capacity, it's non-existent. And so I said, I have to go reach back into time and find the people that are true mentors to me. And those people are guys like Oscar Brashear and Dugu, yourself, sure. the Skipper. And then also on the East Coast, you know, there's all these other beautiful cats too, like, you know, Pat, sure. Mar- Pat Martino and, you know, Bobby Rose and, and, and the list goes on and on and on. Mike Longo, guys that, they were touched by all these you know, everybody that came before them, but... Yeah, Mingus, Duke Ellington, you know, uh, Ben Webster. Cannonball. Uh, Gillespie, right, you know, we just were touched them by them as kids, and we want to be able to touch people. Well, we don't have... we don't like our music. We don't have the Cannonballs. We don't have the guys that are, you know, strong enough to get up there, you know, and and make statements that... about And not, not political statements. I'm just talking about making an album about... Uh, you know, I was listening to this album, the Soul Zodiac. Uh, the Soul Zodiac, he did, and he talks all about the different signs: the Pisces, Taurus, the idea. And he has this guy, this uh, this guy Holmes. I want to say his name is Richard Holmes. I'm not sure. He used to ta- do a radio show uh, in Los Angeles, and the guy's out there, you know, pontificating about the different signs, and they're playing this great. It was Rick. It was Rick Holmes. Rick Holmes, and I'm like, yeah. this is spiritual stuff. This is open-minded stuff, and and you don't hear this anymore. You hear a lot of great Art Blakey and Lee Morgan on KJAZ. But you don't hear people, you know, going off and saying there's other ways to do things than just being a completely rigid, you know, rigid when it comes to education. That's that's kind of where I'm I'm, I'm coming at with this is just to be able to bring in the cats who could play all different types of idioms. They just could play music and they could they were very bright and they could speak their mind. And and, and you know, you fall into that group. Well, you know, I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad to be in your program. I'm sorry we couldn't hook up yesterday, but the day is really cool. Like, uh, I'm going to mention this real quickly. I remember Rick Holmes and uh, Roland Kirk had a big argument <laughs> on the radio one time. Like, you and I talking, it just broke up because uh, Rashid, I mean, um, Roshan. Roshan, uh, Roland Kirk said, man, you're not playing nothing because Rick Holmes was kind of playing crossover, beginning to play crossover at that time. So Roland Kirk busted him right there on the air. And they got into a violent argument because Rick Holmes was trying to keep, you know, people listening to his show and what he had been playing straight ahead was kind of dying out a little bit. He wasn't holding his audience, so Roland Kirk was a straight ahead, like you say, spoke his mind right on the air. They had a, a beautiful argument. They all, they almost went to fisticuffs right there on the air. Oh, man. See, the, but, but see, uh, at least, I mean, and you know, yeah, exactly. And But it was... You know, it didn't matter if it was Dizzy or, you know, these guys stood up for themselves. They advocated right. for themselves. And and it's it's harder in our society now to stand out. Individualism is, and it just shows within the club circuit, the fact that you had an African, that Henry was able to advocate and get an African club to book you guys six days sure. a week. You know, that kind of stuff was still acceptable. And I can only look at that and say... Well, we might have, you know, technologically we might have advanced. And quite frankly, I probably would not have been able to interview Charles Owens over the phone. Maybe I would have back in the in the, in the 60s and 70s. But, I mean, it would have been hard to, to do some of the interviews that I've done today. Uh, but, you know, the, the truth is that as, as far as human connection, 
treating human beings, how we relate. Okay, I see what you mean, yeah. You know, I mean, as insofar as, yeah, we've made this huge jump digitally, we've regressed as humans. That's sort of my thesis after doing 160-some interviews. Well, I think you're, I think you're right about that. People, it's, uh, in the 60s, people cared a little more about each other and looked out for each other a little more. And as time moved on, like into the 70s, things got a little harder in the 80s and the 90s. And now with the unemployment being so bad, it's, uh, people are just becoming a little insensitive. If they don't drive as politely as before. You've got road rage and mm-hmm. people falling down, people down the street if they cut in front of them and trying to shoot them and all that. It's just people, I don't know what it is. It's just, uh, it's not as, people don't care as much about each other as they used to do and don't have as much respect for each other. Maybe they don't go to church enough. I don't know what it is. You like the situation up in Colorado. That's so ridiculous. And then uh, people abusing kids. and uh, It's just, uh, I don't, I'll say they just got away. The world hasn't, has gotten too far away from God. Whatever your religion is, you've got to believe that your brother is your brother. <clears throat> and we've got to look out for each other. It's just like playing in a group. If the drummer's not listening to all the musicians, things don't go as well. If he's just playing for himself, I can always feel that if a cat is going with me, then that makes the music better. We've got to get together and just love one another a little more. That's, that's what the bottom line is. And just, you know, look out for each other. Yeah, well, that if somebody needs a couple of dollars, give it to them. And, you know, if you've got something to give, give it to them. Yeah, there's also a karmatic kind of thing where, you know, that when you give unconditionally that it will come back tenfold and find you. You know, I mean, that's the and that is the the essence of your generation. I mean, the the album that I'm looking at here, you know, open, you know, uh, you know, let me into your heart. You know, it's John Hurd. I got a chance to go out and interview John and and, and Dugu and and, you know, you it doesn't matter. You know, that that's the way you guys were raised. And I'll be honest. I mean. I, you know, I, and I know enough. I mean, I, I think some of the, uh, the you, across the board doesn't matter what denomination you are, doesn't matter what race you are. I think churches are equally part of the problem. I mean, I think ch- yeah. I think church philosophy has changed. I think it's become more corporate. I think also the disheartening thing for my generation. I agree with that. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that makes sense. It does make sense because it's much more rigid in its thinking now. It's not as open minded when you had Donny Hathaway, Billy Preston, these guys growing up in the neighborhoods. They were doing things were accepted musically within the church, and now. It, Again, it all really does come around to music, but you know, you know, at the same time, it's it's uh, it's important to go back and be able to focus on you know the careers and the dexterity that was being uh, offered by you guys in all different types of settings. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't. One of the things I, I found a Charles Owens record uh, in in Boston recently for about three dollars, and right. uh, it was uh, it was the two quartets. Two quartets, and, right? And I was reading the back of the of the liner notes, and and uh, and it co- I come to find out that you went on tour with uh, with Frank Zappa in 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 nineteen seventy two, I believe it was earlier than seventy four, but it we it was it was. But talk, how did that come to being? I mean, that's one of these things that's going to go down in radio history as far as I'm concerned. Well, I, got, I was lucky enough to get in that band because uh, Frank Zappa originally called Harold Land, and he wanted a tenor player that played oboe as well. So Harold said, I don't play oboe band, so Charlie, you recommended <laughs> that I have it. And I went to the rehearsal and, you know, was able to play the, the part that Frank had written out, and that's how I got about through Harold Land recommended me so that was like a brotherhood thing because harold 
wouldn't block me from getting the gig. And the money I got from that gig, I paid for it to have my daughter born. And at that time, it was only $3,000. But it was a, a great experience playing with Frank Zappa because he knew everybody's part. And if you couldn't play it, you could. he would play it on the guitar. Because he went to, I think, uh, El Camino College or Camarillo, somewhere. But he was a tremendously talented gifted musician beside writing all that <laughs> wonderful <laughs> lyrics that he put together you know penis dimension and oh, all kind of crazy stuff. i mean dude he like just being able to experience a tour what was it like to be with all those cats on the tour i mean that must have been an unbelievable time it was and um bruce fowler was on that tour it was napoleon murphy brock i don't even know who was in that right and the fowler oh, uh, i think uh, who was it uh, was it tom or bruce I can't think of the, the piano player's name, and his wife was a piano player. Ruth Ruth Underwood, Underwood Ian Ian Underwood, or something. Yeah. Ian and, and his wife, and she wore some of the slickest pants, man. Woo! Fine, <laughs> mama. She was a vibes player or something. Well, she was. I think she was a piano. She might have been a vibes player. She was some kind of keyboard player, but she would she would really uh, uplift the feeling of the rehearsal when she walked in with those little almost pants, and <laughs> I don't. It was. That was a wonderful experience there. And then they had a, a bassoon, a Fowler, Bruce Fowler on trumpet, and his wife was on bassoon. It was a, We all had to play our instruments through an amplifier. Everybody had to be amplified. So Frank was way ahead of his time. Even later on, Miles, you know, put up the electric, playing the electronic trumpet, but Frank Zappa had us all playing electrified instruments, and we had a man out front controlling everybody's sound make it blend and we played at the hollywood bowl it was it was a great tour a wonderful wonderful my my musicianship improved more in the four months that i worked rehearsing up to the two-week tour than any period of my life because i had to read a nine eight and six four and just really be on my toes all the time so it was a <laughs> wonderful wonderful challenge and a great experience you know, I, I read somewhere, uh, I think in the same liner notes, though, and this is so important. I mean, you know, you see, you, you, look, you look at guys' dis- discographies or the credits they're given, and, you know, you talk very frankly about, you know, after that work with, with Frank and maybe, you know, work, you did you did local work with Al Williams and, and the Skipper. Sure. But, you know, you really spent some time, I can't remember the specific instruments, but you really went back and spent time honing your craft, your sound. You went in right. and really, really put, you know, to, to develop your chops. And I just think for the younger cats out there that the, you know, the ones that don't have the money to go to these massive academia, academic institutions, you know, the, the ones that have an instrument that long to play. I mean, what are kind of the practice tips, the, the, the hard scrabble stuff where you don't need a million dollars in order to, to, to improve yourself and make yourself a, a reputable player? Well, you find a, you pick out somebody that you admire and then go study with them. Find out what they charge. Some guys charge fifty dollars for half an hour or seventy five dollars for an hour and you lay with them for a couple of years the reason i was able to hone my craft is i i got the gi bill i was eligible for the gi bill so i got i got paid for going to school and learning the oboe and the flute and the clarinet out of cal state la and um so that's i, I just took advantage of the opportunity that i had and uh but there's a way like you go there's a lot of wonderful, great players at Los Angeles and New York and Chicago for young people to go. In fact, uh, 
I'm kind of like the Buddy Collette of Los Angeles now since Buddy has passed on. That's awesome. I, what a great, I mean, that's that's great company right there. Well, he taught me a lot and, you know, left it wide open, showed me how to, you know, be fair with the students. If if you just have to tell the students the truth that they're playing out of tune, you can't say, oh, you sound good. you got to say, well, that note needs a little more work on it. pisses the student off because Buddy used to tell me the same thing. Wait a minute, Charlie. That's C sharp. Oh, wait a minute. That's not. That's not acceptable. I would be pissed for about two months. I wouldn't go back for a lesson till I got over being angry because I knew he was just telling the truth. And he told the other students the same thing. And Bill Green was the same thing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That fingering is not right. So you have to go somebody to somebody that's going to be your mentor and lay with them no matter through the good times and the bad times. So that's that's how like I taught Lewis Taylor. Wonderful saxophone player nowadays. I taught Kamasi Washington. Oh, wow. I taught, I taught Azar when he was just coming up, and he was so gifted. I said, man, if nothing I can teach you, you just need to go to New York. And he was, it was a little coffee house here uh, called um, East West Connection that Larry Gales and Rose Gales run that ran at that time. And Larry Gales had just come off the road with Thelonious Monk and settled in Los Angeles and opened up a coffee house. And Azar came through there and played, and, and Larry's was friends with everybody. So Larry told Elvin Jones and McCoy Tyner about Azar, and the rest is history. But I taught, gave Azar his first saxophone lesson. So that's, you know, and now Azar comes and plays on my gigs, and I go and play on his gigs, and I'm stealing his licks, and he's stealing mine. <laughs> We're having a ball playing. But that's how it is. It's just, it's just uh, helping each other whenever there's an the opportunity Right, whatever the opportunity. Yeah, you know, there's there's nothing to apologize for being a shameless thief when you're borrowing ideas from Azar or, or him from you. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it really, I, I you know, talk to me. Larry Gale's Coffee House uh, has come up for me before because I promoted a concert in honor of Gene Russell last summer in Lamert Park sure. with, with the Skipper and Calvin, the, Carl Burnett, George Harper, and <coughs> Bobby Pierce, and um, you know. Th- Talk about like that one to five slot in the morning. Like when you got out there, aside, was was there like some organ trio gig that you would sit on like, with Charles Kennard or Bill Cosby? Did you ever overlap with those cats? No, but uh, Herman Roddy is the reason I got the gig at uh, the coffee house with Larry Gills because Herman had the real good gig over at the Coconut Grove backing up the, like people like Sammy Davis and Tony Bennett. So he couldn't make the gig over at the coffee house on time. He'd get off about 11.30 or 12, and he'd come over there and play. But in the meantime, he recommended me to go over and play at the coffee house. And I got the gig and laid with it for a long time. But And then um, it was an opportunity for I had just first gotten here, didn't have a gig, period. And, and Herman and I, Herman Riley and I went back to San Diego he, when he first came out in 1955 from New Orleans. He came to San Diego first. And I was going to San Diego State, and we were in a band down there that played at the, the Elks Club. It's a little place right next to the railroad tracks on Friday and Saturday night. Whenever the train came by, <laughs> it would rumble and shake the little house, and, but the blues would keep on playing. So that's how I got the gig with Larry Gills. And um, who was in that? Who was in the band that that he, you took his spot with? Who was in that group? Well. Uh, uh, Shaw, a guy that played with Charlie Mingus for a minute, uh, trumpet player. Woody Shaw. Gene Shaw. Oh, Gene Shaw. Gene Shaw. Gene, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gene Shaw and, and Bill Henderson was on piano because I remember I, I played a trick on him. 
were every you know we would play giant steps, and so we got to the rehearsal and Bill wasn't there yet. So I said I changed the key on him. So when Bill got there, he couldn't he couldn't play the song. He couldn't play the song. <laughs> he couldn't and, figure uh, out why. Yeah, but then he said, "Okay, that song's supposed to be in the key of C or whatever it is, or F." And uh, so I got a big out of that. But it's Bill Henderson who plays played a lot with uh, Henry. They grew up together. And Bill Henderson went through the USC gifted program, just as Ndugu, not no, uh, Patrice Russian did. And uh, so he was a piano player. I can't think who the drummer was right now. Uh, maybe Eddie Coward, a guy from Chicago, I think was the drummer. It was, uh, uh, it, it was, a, it was a beautiful time. And I, and I, you know, as we wrap up this, this part one of our interview, because we do need to do more, um, I, I wanted to to talk to you a little bit about um, your experience. The first time I actually became aware of Charlie Owens was on uh, one of the Skipper's albums called uh, Tribal Dance, uh, which was on the, the Catalyst label um, uh, from 1976. And, you know, it, could you talk a little bit about uh, your relationship uh, with the Skipper? I, the one line that stood out to me, it was, uh, and it was before I ever even ventured into this uh, this radio career, you said in the liner notes, you said, you know, actually, I, you know, Henry is disappointed in me when he, when I don't play what I really feel. You know, it was, it was like the idea of being yourself, just be yourself. And if you That's weren't, if you weren't being yourself, then you were fake and he was disappointed in that. That is a major va- quality in people that, um, that is missing today. People are afraid to be themselves. And I just wanted you to talk about Henry and what that kind of inst- that kind of confidence instilled in you to actually be yourself and play what you felt. Well, I'm I'm basically a an outside or a vanguard player, and Henry knew that from when I first got to town because he basically likes high energy music. You know, if you're not playing uh, as hard as you can, as much as you can from your heart, um, that dis- that'll disappoint Henry every time. And he knows the difference because he's gonna whatever song I would I would play it might be just a little slower than what Henry would play it. He likes high energy stuff, and he knows he's a good bass players are accompanying instrumentalists, people like that. A bass player is an accompanying instrument, so uh, he knows how to press your buttons by playing different notes or by playing the song fast. He knows how to challenge you, and he knows when you're not when you're making it and when you're not making it which makes him a, a great band leader and a, a great person and a good friend of mine because he doesn't um, pull any punches. <laughs> he knows. He wants the real deal. As simple as that. He's a great, great uh, mentor and friend, and he helped me with the this fighting a record company for my last record called Joy, which I sent you. He showed me how to get in touch with City Hall Records. So he's a good, good uh, friend all the way around. Charlie Owens, um, it's been an honor to talk to you, and we'll do this uh, again. Uh, I'll be in touch. We'll do this again real soon to, co- to cover some more music and some more, uh, more of your career. Let me put this on your mind. I know you've got about 30 seconds. One of these days, I'd love to come down there and do a concert, maybe just bring a, a drummer and pick up a bass player down there and do something, because it sounds like you're pro- promoting shows. That'd be a privilege and a pleasure, and my wife and I would get in our little SUV that we came through there last yesterday and drive down there and hang out and enjoy Tucson because I was born in Phoenix, Arizona and had a, you know, so 
that'd be a great experience. So keep that in mind. Uh, let me Thank tell you, you something. For having me on your program. Hey, let me tell you something, my friend. I just started to promote here in town. I had a very successful promotion for a piano and organist here, and uh, it, it, I know you're serious, and and we're going to make that happen real, uh, you know, real soon, my friend. That sounds good, and like I say, keep up the good work. Uh, your credit to the jazz community and the disc jockey community and the jazz. So thank you very much for having me on your program. I appreciate it. Charlie, much love, man, and bless you. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. The Jake Feinberg Show on KWFM 1330. The Star.